Welcome, ladies. This is a Tehillim class, uh, so get out before it's too late, if that's not what you came for. Uh, the painting is inside. Uh, but for those that came to study the Tehillim, we're not up to chapter Aleph. Actually, this is a project that's uh, in motion already, and we're up to chapter 79. So I did most of the work for you already. The first 78 chapters already are in the bank. But today we came to study chapter Ayin Tet. It would help if we had books. Uh, we do have books. Okay, so that's why it's going to help. Uh, if you open up the chapter Ayin Tet, it is your lucky day because this is one of the classics. I mean, they're all classics, but this is uh, for sure one of the classics. Ayin Tet. I know that's taking you back to grade school to figure out where the letter I in is in the alphabet. It's a little tricky. I know, it's a little tricky. It comes after uh, the word, the letter Samich, which comes after the letter Nun. We might have to go back to the Aleph Bet before we start learning Tehillim. Anyway, it's in English, it's in chapter 79. <laughs> there you go. Page number will help us. 189, you said? 189. All right, looks like that's going to be the hardest part of the class, finding the chapter. But now that we located it, we're going to uh, give a little introduction. So uh, this is a, uh, a chapter that was written not necessarily by David Amelech. It's a misconception that everybody thinks that David Amelech wrote all the chapters of Tehillim. He did not. Gemara says that there were several authors. And one of the authors is today's, he's called Asaf. Asaf is actually uh, one of the children of Korah. Uh, Korah, we know from the Torah, he was the one that waged the mutiny against Moshe Rabbeinu. And uh, all of Korah's uh, uh, family uh, was part of the uh, mutiny. And at the last minute they backed out and they sided with Moshe and they made Teshuvah. So Korah got swallowed in the ground. I mean, he's still under the ground somewhere, subterranean uh, place. But it says, Ubne Korah lometu. The children of Korah did not die. And one of the children that did not die was Asaf himself. And he writes a, a chapter. And we have to see what exactly this man has to sing about. But he says in the first pasuk, Mizmor Asaf, The song of Asaf. So this is a jingle. When you see the word mizmor, it usually implies uh, a, happy, a happy chapter. So we can rest assured that the pesukim that we're going to read are going to be something that is positive and upbeat. Mizmor le'asaf, song of asaf, and listen to the words. Elohim, God. Now whenever you see the word Elohim, that refers to God's justice, God's strictness. So already we're on the wrong foot. You just told me we're singing a song and you start already with a word that represents justice and deen. Elohim. Ba'u goyim b'nachalatecha. The goyim entered your nahala. Your nahala means your, your, your plot, which is in Jerusalem. Teme'u etechal kochecha. They defiled, they impurified your hechal, your, uh, uh, your holy your holy place, 
Samu et Yerushalayim, and they placed Jerusalem le'iyim. Le'iyim means they turned Jerusalem into rubble. Some song. I mean, uh, this man had some sense of humor. He starts off the chapter by saying Mizmor, and we don't see anything over here Mizmor to sing about. I would have started the chapter, Kina, Lamentation of Asaf. This belongs in the uh, Tisha B'Av service. He's talking about the destruction of the temples. The Goyim came in, they destroyed the Nahala, they impurified the Beit HaMikdash, they turned Jerusalem into rubble. And if this is not enough, look at the next pasuk. They took the servants of God and they murdered them without any mercy and they left them strewn in the street to become food for Ofa Shamayim, for the birds. Besar Hasidecha and the flesh, forgive me, but the flesh of the Hasidecha, of the righteous ones, became the food for Haitoaris. For the animals. Now, I don't find uh, this to be a mizmor at all. If somebody came along and said, you know, this is the top ten uh, uh, mizmorim. What kind of mizmor is this over here? This is terrible. Look at the next pasuk. Shavchu damam kamayim. They spilled, they spilled the blood of the Jewish people at the time of the destruction like water. Sebivot Yerushalayim around the streets of Jerusalem. And guess what? And nobody even was able to bury them. The Mitzudot explained because it was so scary, even the survivors were scared to leave their house to bury the dead. Because if they leave the house, who knows what's going to happen to them? Stop here. We have to stop here. In order to appreciate why Asaf is writing this chapter... Why does he call it a mizmor? And secondly, what do you care, Asaf, about the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash? Why out of all the people in the world, the son of Korah has some, uh, some connection to the destruction? So in order to understand it, since we're studying Tehillim not as a, uh, uh, a course where we just read words and interpret it, we're studying it in depth, I bring your attention to a Gemara, in Kiddushin. To understand chapter 79, you need to open up Kiddushin, Gemara, page 31b. And you must read this story. So the Gemara tells us a story over here about the mitzvah of Kibud Abba'im. We have a mitzvah to respect our parents. And the Gemara in these pages goes through many different stories of, of Sadiqim, how they went out of their way to show uh, respect and the honor to their parents. The Gemara gives an example. Uh, there was a rabbi called Rabbi Abahu. Rabbi Abahu says, you want to see an example of respecting the father, Kibud Ab, Kegon Avimi. Look at my son, my son Avimi. Really? Kiyem mitzvat Kibud. He knows how to respect his father properly. And he goes on to tell the story. Hamisha Abimi. So it says Abimi, he had uh, five children that he was supporting. And when Rabbi uh, Abahu would come, 
And when he would come uh, visit, Kari Ababa Rahit Ve'azil Upatahle Ve'amar In In Adematehatam. He says when his father would come knock on the door, even though this fellow Abimi had five sons, he would not let his sons answer the door for his father. He himself would answer the door himself. And as he was answering the door, he would run to the door and say to his father, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Because he didn't want his father to knock on the door and say, where, 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 where's everybody? So he would let him know already from the, uh, from the living room. I'm coming, I'm coming. They didn't have, uh, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, the, the electric door where you buzz the guy in. Exactly. So therefore he had to run to the door and he says, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'll be right there. Yomahad, one day when he was serving his father, he told his son, please, uh, uh, Abimi, can you bring me some water? In the meantime, he brought it to him. The father fell asleep. Now what is he going to do? So he held the water and he leaned over his father like this with the water. Until his father woke up. I mean, another person could have just put it on the side, walk out, tiptoe. He didn't want to make any noise. And he knew if his father wakes up, he wants to have the water there immediately. So therefore he waited. Now we don't know how long he fell asleep. Was it a cat nap for five minutes? Or did he go to sleep for an hour? We don't know how long. But something happened. It says, He had what's called Si'atadishmaya. Means he was involved in the Mizvat Kibud Av, and at that moment he received divine assistance. He received a certain amount of uh, 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 communication from above. In what sense? And he got the deep interpretation of chapter 79 in Tehillim. Oh, oh. Now we got a problem here. We're getting, we're getting warm, because now at least we see that to understand chapter 79, you need already a revelation with Siatadishmaya from heaven. And now we're seeing the place where this chapter actually was revealed during that episode of him holding the water for his father in the fulfilling of the mitzvah of Kibud Av. Only one problem, the Gemara does not tell us what the secret is. The Gemara just says, he got it. So now we have to do some digging. So I refer you to the Tosafot. Uh, ladies, like you're in yeshiva. Now we go to the Tosafot, which is the commentary on the side. And he says, As he was leaning over and giving him the water, He never understood the chapter before that moment. Therefore he started to doresh it. Some explain, some say that the main derash that came to him at that moment was actually the first pasuk. So he thought to himself, it should be a kina, it should be a lamentation. I mean, it's talking about the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And then he came along and he said, no, I have an interpretation why it's a song. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, got angry at B'nai Yisrael, obviously, because in the time of the first temple, we were committing cardinal crimes. 
immorality, idolatry, and murder. Those are the three biggest crimes that we have in the Torah, and the Jewish people were in contempt of all three. Bori Olam sent the prophets, and the Jews didn't listen to the prophets. And actually, they killed some of the prophets. And finally, God was not able to uh, uh, have any more patience for the people, and he took his temple, and it was destroyed. It was pulverized into ash. At this point, we see a silver lining. And the silver lining is the following. There was once a king, and the king decided to make a wedding for his son, the prince that was getting married. And the king could spend, you know, all the money. He has an open budget. And he went and he hired, a, what they call it, a planner. And they brought all the tapestries and the band, the food, the king in the king's garden, something, something incredible. The day of the wedding, the prince rebelled against the kingdom. He committed a big sin against his father. And the king was so furious. He says, on the day of the wedding, he does such a thing. And the king went out into his garden and he starts to rip all the tapestries and he starts to take the canopy and he throws it to the ground and he goes to the food station. He starts to tip all the, uh, the dishes of the food over there. He's breaking everything. The dishes smashes them down to the ground. He takes all the silverware, the gold weight, throws it all over the place. Now he goes to the band and he goes to the band. He starts breaking all the uh, instruments and there's one violinist over there. And the violinist is playing. As the king is doing everything, the violinist is playing a beautiful song. So the king becomes even more furious. He says, are you out of your mind? You see what I'm doing over here? He says, my dear king, this is so joyous and so happy. So happy. <laughs> if you don't explain yourself, I'm going to kill you also. So the violinist says, <laughs> we understand the king is angry. But thank God the prince isn't here. Because if the prince was here, you'd be killing him. Thank God you took your anger out on, on tangible items. You took your anger out on things that you could replace. You're the king. Tomorrow your anger will subside. The prince will make the shuvah. And you could call the caterer again and make even a bigger wedding. Everything that you destroy today can be replaced. The reason why I'm singing a song is because, thank God, you didn't take your anger out on your son. Because if you would have killed him, then already it's irreplaceable. So says the Tosafot, when Asaf saw the destruction of the Beta Mignash, so he said, listen, it's terrible. But thank God he took his anger out on sticks and stones. God is rich. He can rebuild the Beta Mignash in a minute. But imagine if he would have taken his anger out on the Jewish people. That already, there would be no survivors. So therefore, there's a silver lining in the destruction. Therefore, it says, He saw something positive in the destruction. That he took his wrath out on sticks and stones and not on the people. You could replace sticks and stones, but you can't replace the nation. You can't replace the people. And therefore, and that came to this rabbi, Avimi, as he was serving his father. Now, I have a question. Now we understand Mizmor Le'asaf, very nice. But I asked a simple question, and then I found it that the Benish Hai asked the question. The question is like this. Why, at that moment, when he was holding the water for his father, did this idea come to him? Which means, there must be a connection. I mean, the Gemara gives us a whole drama 
how he came and he was doing kibud av, and all of a sudden uh, 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 this idea came to him. So the explanation might be that since he was involved in honoring his father, uh, a hidush came to him that's connected to what he was doing. Because at the end of the day, why did God not destroy the Jewish people? And why did God take his anger out only on sticks and stones? Because God is our father. And even when a father gets angry at a child, he still has mercy on the child. And therefore, from the mercy of the father, he did not kill his son. And therefore, the hidush that the rabbi thought of in the midst, while he was fulfilling the mitzvah of tending to his father, came a hidush to him on how God also is a father. And how the mercy of God as a father manifested itself even on that dreadful day when he destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, but he did not destroy the child. So therefore, it brought him to a higher level of not only Aviv Ba'anis, but it brought him to the level of Aviv Sheba Shamayim, his father in heaven, and how God acts in such a way to his children. While he was respecting his father, he learned something about how the father respects the son in the sense of how HaKadosh Baruch Hu had mercy on that day. That's the first interpretation, our honor. But make it an easy one. No, no. Not all. Not all. That's a lot. Plenty. But guess what? We're still here. <laughs> if God wanted the, to... And that could have happened, by the way, because remember when the Jewish people worshipped the golden calf, God said to Moshe Rebbe, give me a second and I'll wipe them all out. And Moshe Rebbe had to plead. So it was quite possible that this could have happened again. So Borelam took a collateral, a small collateral of tzaddikim, of hasidim, but the people ultimately survived it. But if God wanted it, it could have been much worse. And therefore he says, at the end of the day, the collateral was taken, the Beit HaMikdash can be replaced, and guess what? Although the second temple was not as glorious as the first temple, but the third temple that he's going to build it and replace is going to be more magnificent even than the, both of them combined. So therefore, Borelam could throw even a more elaborate wedding when the time will come. That's interpretation number one. But, uh, dear ladies, it doesn't explain... Why the son of Korah, Asaf, was the one that is the author of this chapter? What does Asaf have to do with the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash? So Tosafot, in his second interpretation, quotes from the Midrash, and he says something beautiful based on another story. There's another story that was told as follows. So you know Korah, by the way, is swallowed underneath the ground. Beautiful. You also have to know that when the first Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, and we'll learn how it was destroyed in a minute, so David had a contribution to the first Beit HaMikdash. He had built the Ark, the Aron, the, uh, uh, the, the gates of the Aron, and these were very, very, very precious because they were the handiwork of David. <clears throat> and God did not want to let the Guim destroy David's handiwork. So a miracle happened at the day of the destruction. The ground opened up and the gates of the Beit HaMikdash got swallowed into the ground. As the Pasuk says somewhere else, in Megillat Echa, Tabi'u Ba'ares She'areha. Tabi'u Ba'ares She'areha. The gates of the temple got swallowed on the ground. Watch. 
and therefore they're in storage somewhere. So the Tosafot brings a story. There was a, uh, a maidservant, and the maidservant was told by her uh, boss, uh, the, 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 the lady of the house, go to the well and bring water, fetch water. So she goes with her little uh, earthenware vessel, and she goes to the well, she puts a, 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 a string, a rope, and she lowers it into the well, and as she's uh, bringing it up, the rope snaps, and the earthenware vessel falls to the bottom of the well, and she looks at the well, and she starts crying, and I see that that's all she has, this little earthenware vessel, and she's crying, and she's crying, oh, how am I going to get my vessel? And she's sitting there. All of a sudden, the princess comes. The princess comes to the well with all her uh, you know, entourage, also, the princess gets off the carriage and she has a gold, beautiful vessel. And she has a beautiful chain attached to the gold vessel. And the princess was thirsty and she wanted to have water. So she starts to lower her vessel. Or maybe her servants are lowering the vessel for her. And she's looking very happily to get her water. And as they're bringing it up, guess what? The chain of the princess broke and the gold vessel went down into the water. And all of a sudden, the maidservant starts to smile, and she starts to clap. She's dancing. So the princess says, what kind of warp sense of humor you have over here? You're, you're laughing because my, uh, my, my gold vessel fell into the, uh, into the water? My dear princess, God forbid, that's not why I'm laughing. Before you came, I lost my earthenware. And I said, who's going to go down into the well to retrieve a junky, cheap earthenware vessel? But now that your vessel, which is gold, went down, for sure you're not going to leave it there. So the one that goes down to retrieve the gold vessel will retrieve my vessel as well. And therefore, that's why I'm happy. Because by your vessel falling into the well, my vessel now is going to be saved as well. Evanta, that's the mashal. Said Asaf, the son of Korah, my father is buried underneath the ground. My father, uh, he fought against Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, he wasn't such a good character. Who's going to open up the ground when Mashiach comes in order to take this piece of earthenware vessel called Korah? Uh, my father wasn't a big sending. Is God going to make such a miracle just for the sake of Korah? Probably not. But when Kor, when, when Asaf had a prophecy and he saw the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, and he saw the gates of the Beit HaMikdash got swallowed in the ground. So he said, wait, they're going to have to open up the ground to get the gates. Once the ground is opened up to get the gates, they'll say, all right, Korah, we open the ground already. Yalla, come on up already. He'll get a lift. He'll take a, uh, uh, what do you call it? A hill, 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 uh, tailgate. He'll hold on to the gate. Bamash, tailgate. Bamash, that's a, literally, no pun intended. He'll tailgate. He'll hold on to the gates and he'll, he'll, he'll come out. And therefore, Korah Asaf was happy that was the Mizmor. When he saw the destruction for him, it represented the salvation of his father. The one that will open the ground to retrieve the gates of David will also bring Korah back to the, to the fold. So therefore, for Asaf specifically, the destruction has a silver lining. That's why he opens it by saying Mizmor Asaf. And I add... And I, now I understand why Avimi, the rabbi of the Gemara, thought of this, because this is what he thought of at the time when he was serving his father. Because this is an example of Asaf having respect for his father. He was worried about his father. My poor father's underneath the ground. Who's going to save my father? 
when he heard about the destruction, he saw the events, it brought him joy, and the, even though he was saved, even though he was saved, but he was worried about his father, and therefore it could not have come to a better rabbi like Abimi when he was respecting his father, holding the water for him. These ideas of Kibud Ab, in the sense of what Asap was uh, jingling about for the respect of his father Korah. So that's a second interpretation what makes this uh, chapter a uh, mizmor. Why is it a song? Now I'd like to say, uh, if I may, uh, another interpretation uh, that I saw here brought down in the Sefarim, in the back of the Gemara. There's your lucky day, you're learning really the way we learn in Yeshiva, as I said. In the back of the Gemara, there's a comment of Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver. He was a great Kabbalist. And he has some notes in, in the back over here. And he says something very, very, very deep. His question is like this. I mean, it's going to sound like a, uh, uh, you know, a sarcastic question that no, none of us would have the guts to ask. But he asks it. He says, I want to ask you a question. What makes the Beit HaMikdash holy at the end of the day? What makes the temple so holy? The Beit HaMikdash in Jerusalem. Is it the marble that makes it holy? Is it the wood that made it holy? Is it the windows? Is it the furnishing? Is it the rugs? Is it the tapestries? Bottom line, what makes the place holy? And there's only one answer to it. It's not the structure. It was God's presence that was in the structure. I mean, otherwise, it's a house. I mean, a house is a house. What makes the Beit HaMikdash sanctified because it has sanctity. And where does the sanctity come from? From the presence of God. Now, on the day of the destruction, was the sanctity of God destroyed? No. Where did the sanctity of God go? It moved. Trust me. The Guim were not able to harm the sanctity of the Shekhinah, even an iota. The sanctity of God is eternal. What were they able to uh, destroy? Sticks and stones. So at the end of the day, what part of the temple did they destroy? They destroyed the body of it. But they did not destroy the soul of it. So Rabbi Isaac Haber asks a very strong question. So what are we mourning? What are you mourning? What are we making such a fuss? They destroyed a physical structure. And there's nothing in the physical structure. I, the Shekhinah, Shekhinah is in place. Nothing happened to the Shekhinah. It just moved locations. So what's the big fuss of making uh, yearly fasts and mourning and abelud and all this stuff in order to commemorate a, uh, a seemingly non-event? I mean, it's a non-event. Uh, so, so, some wood got burned, some rugs got burned, some walls got singed. Uh, but it's, a, it's, a, it's physical stuff. It's all physical. So his answer, I mean, his answer, he answers this question by asking a, a, a more, a closer to home question. God forbid, everybody in the room will have long life. Amen. Amen. When a person passes, what are you mourning about? Person is made up of two parts. He's made up of the physical part, and he's made up of the of the soul that's inside. When a person passes, nothing happens to his soul. His soul cannot die. As a matter of fact, 
in, in, in the holy books when a person passes, they don't say met. They say niftar. Uh, niftar means deceased, uh, which means uh, there was a separation between the body and soul. That's all that happened. I mean, that's all. That's a lot. But that's what happens. There's a separation of body and soul. So therefore, does the soul die? No. Was the soul alive before the person died? Yes. Is the soul alive after the person died? Yes. Now, the physical part, well, that's nothing anyway. The physical part is, uh, is physical. So therefore, what are you mourning? You're mourning that what? The physical, that was always dead, by the way. The physical is dead even when you're alive. The physical is nothing. It's the soul that's keeping the body alive. So therefore, he wants to understand what's the, the, the secret of why people mourn. Unless you tell, well, we miss the person. Okay, you miss the person, that's another reason. So his answer is, and I'll, I'll add, he doesn't say this part, but I will add. Ladies, please don't get nervous. I know you say, what do you mean? There's a Tehidim class. How come you're not reading Pesukim? Oh, he's talking too much. I'm explaining you the Pesukim. We're learning it deep. And those, uh, if you came for quantity to gobble up as many Pesukim as you can, that's, uh, we're not in the Olympics. We're coming over here to explain the Pesukim properly, in depth. I'm very happy we can understand one Pesuk qualitatively, and then, 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 then we move on. There's no, there's no race over here. <clears throat> Where were we? Oh, so now the explanation is like this. I'm adding, Rabbi Isaac Habib does not say this. There's a halakha in the laws of Shabbat that God forbid if there's a fire and the Sefer Torah is on fire, bar and you have to save the Sefer. The halakha says not only, and you have to bring it into, let's say, the public domain, or to a, a domain that does not have an eruv. Halakha says, go save the Sefer. But matzilin etatiki masefer. You also are allowed to save the case. I wouldn't have thought that. I would have said the case, the case, some, some artist made it very nice, but the case is only a case. But the halakha says no. Why? Why do you save the case? Because since the case houses the Sefer Torah, it takes on sanctity, not intrinsic sanctity, but it takes on sanctity because it serves as the house of a Sefer Torah, and therefore, from the contents that are within, the case itself takes on Kedusha itself. And therefore, you have to save the case itself. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the body. The body in itself is physical. It has no intrinsic Kedusha. The body is made up of Afar is dirt. It's made up of physical elements, dirt, water, uh, fire, wind. But it's nothing spiritual, but it houses the neshama. And since the body houses the neshama, and without a body, your neshama would not be able to come down to this world. So the body has kiddushah as a result of what is within the, the body. The soul brings sanctity to the body. And therefore... When a, uh, uh, when a soul departs, so we, 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 we cry about the body as well. Although the soul didn't die, but the body, the body is holy. A Jewish body that has neshama in it. With this we explain something very, 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 very deep. The holiest day of the week, we know is Shabbat. Not Sunday, Shabbat. Now, on Shabbat, what do we spend our day on Shabbat? Besides shul and the rabbi's class, put that aside. We eat. 
Three meals, they tell us. And even so, you have to have one for good luck after Shabbat. And they tell us, put on your finest clothes. And they want you to shave before Shabbat and make yourself beautiful before Shabbat. Ah, that sounds like a very physical, act, much physical activity for a very spiritual day. What's the explanation? So the Kabbalists write, because on Shabbat, your body is doing you not a single favor, but a double favor. Because the Zohar says that on Shabbat, we get an extra soul. We get the Shabbat Yitera. So now imagine you have a case of a Sefer Torah that's carrying two Sefer Torah. So that case becomes that much more important. On Shabbat, the reason why we pay so much attention to our body, because it's holding two souls. And therefore, you have to polish the case. So how do you polish the case? We eat a little extra, we sleep a little extra, and we tend to the body, not because of the body of it, only because of what's within. Well, now let's go further. Come back to the Beit HaMikdash. You're right. Sticks and stones. But it was these sticks and stones that actually was the encasement of the Shekinah. And the Shekinah would not have been able to rest unless you had this structure that was made out of physical elements. Therefore, when the structure was destroyed, we're crying for the structure as well. Not intrinsically, but for what it represented inside. So we gave three parables to this. You have the, the body in relation to the soul, the Sefer Torah and the case, and the Beit HaMikdash and the Shekinah that was within. What does it have to do with Kibud Abba'im? <laughs> Rabbi Isaac Haber says something so, so, so special. The Gemara says in Nida that there's three partners in the creation of humans. And that is the mother, the father, and God. I mean, today you say mother and father, you can get it, you can throw you in jail for saying that. But in the traditional world where, you were, where things were normal, there's a mother and a father. That's, that's the traditional way, and that's the way it should be, obviously. So now, and then you have God. And the Gemara in Nida actually tells us which parts each one of these partners contributes. And the Gemara says, well, the white of the eye, uh, the mother contributes. And the black of the eye comes from the father. And the bone comes from the father. And the marrow comes from the mother. And it goes through the, all the body parts. Uh, I guess the rabbis were, you know, they were geniuses in uh, biology. And they knew exactly how to divide the body parts, which is coming from the mother, which is coming from the father. And together you have a, a child, a human being. And they come along and say, what does God contribute to the process? The soul, which incidentally is the most important partner of the whole thing because without a soul, you don't have a battery. Without a battery, though, the body is just... Uh, but that's the three partners. So says Rabbi Isaac Haber, I understand why I have to respect God. Because, I mean, God has given me a neshama. That's his, uh, his, 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 his contribution. So therefore... Kavod, Shamayim, I understand. But why do I have to respect my parents? What did they give me at the end of the day? Physical stuff? The physical body, that's your contribution. It's the physical body. It's nothing, uh, nothing major. It's, uh, it's something that's mundane. It's something that's pedestrian. The human body is nothing holy. So therefore, the question that the rabbi is saying, why is it that we have to respect Kibud Avim? And the answer is, because without that body that your parents contributed... God's part, which is the soul, would not be able to rest. The soul cannot rest just in the air. It needs a house. 
And therefore, the respect of parents, we have to have gratitude. Thank you for giving me a house that God was able to rest his soul inside. And that's the underpinnings of Kibud Abayim. The underpinnings are spiritual underpinnings of gratitude, but of gratitude on a high level. Not only gratitude because you, you got me braces when I was 13 years old. We're not talking about that. And you, you did carpool. We're not talking about that. Gratitude because without the body, I would have no soul. And without a soul, we have no eternity. And therefore you provided me with a, with a beautiful uh, encasement called the human body. Therefore, kibud ba'em. And where did, um, where did this come from? Avimi, now we go back and wrap it up. Avimi was respecting his father. He was fulfilling the Mazab Kibud And he started to think to himself, why do, we, why do we afford our parents so much respect? Why are we uh, doing such a, uh, going out of our way? And he started to philosophize a little. Oh. Do they really deserve the respect? After all, what am I respecting? The parents who gave me a body? What's a body? And all of a sudden, as he was thinking these ideas, an interpretation to this chapter, the chapter that talks about the destruction. And he started to think about the destruction of the temple. And he said to himself, what are we mourning that? What are we mourning that for? And he started to come to the realization that the reason why we're mourning that is because of the soul that was being encased in the temple. And that's why we have to respect our parents because they give us... And he started to make the correlation between the chapter 79, which talks about the destruction and what he was involved in. And therefore he came to the, to the truth that ultimately this chapter is a, uh, uh, a proof to why respect for parents that only gave us the physical side of life is demanded from us. For the same reason why we're demanded to, uh, 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 to mourn the temple. So according to Isaac, he doesn't explain why he called it a mizmor. But at least he explains the correlation between the destruction of the temple and what he was doing by respecting his parents. It was from the destruction that he learned the underpinnings of why it is so important to respect parents. Because just like the temple, although it's physical, but when it housed inside, our parents also gave us the physical side of life which houses the Neshama of God that is inside as well. I think that is a, uh, a stunning and a, a beautiful, beautiful piece, if I may say so uh, myself. Now, now I, I'd like to say something else that I saw in a sefer called Pinei Yoshua. In Pinei Yoshua, Pinei Yoshua, he says something uh, also interesting. Why, why this man called Asaf he sang about the destruction. Mizmor, he sang. He thought it was, he thought it was amusing. He, he sang a song. Mizmor, why? He says, because we know that Esav, Esav, the brother of Yaakov, he actually is the uh, great-great-great-grandfather of the Romans. Now actually responsible for the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And Hakamim tell us that Esav, although he was a, you know, he was a bona fide rasha, that's for sure, but he had a zikhut. And that zikhut is going to carry uh, him all the way until Mashiach, until that zikhut depletes. And what was the zikhut that Esav has? Exactly. He respected his father. 
Uh, and the Gemara even says it. One of the rabbis said, you know, uh, I respected my father my whole life and I didn't reach one hundredth of what Ishav did the way he respected his father. Now, we don't have too many stories uh, uh, what he did, but it seems when he used to come into his father, he would put on a tuxedo and dress up and make sure, even though his father was blind at the time, but it doesn't matter. And he served his father and so on and so forth. And that kibud av gave Esav a lot, a lot of zikhut. So says the Pnei Yoshua, that we make a calculation. If Esav, who only did Kibud Ad, that was his only mitzvah, and look at the merit this man got. Us, who have many mitzvot, and we serve God on many levels. Could you imagine if that's the way God rewards the sinner? If that's the way God rewards the transgressors, could you imagine what God's going to do to what He's going to do to the to those that have uh, 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 have served Him, and therefore, uh, as a uh, as a result, uh, we learn from this kibud uh, of Esav that how much sakhar is going to be uh, given to the Jewish people. And therefore, uh, at the time that he was fulfilling this uh, mitzvah of kibbud av, he started to contemplate. Who else did kibbud av? Esav. And look at the merit that these guys had. Esav was able to destroy the temple. That's what, I mean, to them it's a big accomplishment. And where did it come from? They had a zikut of kibbud av. So he started to think, wait, if Esav's kibbud ab gave him a merit to destroy our temple, that's how God rewards the transgressors. Mizmor, he started to sing. How much more reward is God going to give us that are not the transgressors, that we are the fulfillers of the Mizmor. So that brought him to Mizmor Le'asad. When he saw the destruction of the temple, he saw Esav must have had a zechut to destroy the temple. And what was the zechut? Kibbud ab. And he said, well, I'm doing kibbud ab, and that's only one out of 613. So therefore, if God rewards Esav for one mitzvah, certainly he's going to reward us for many more. Therefore, Mizmor Asaf, he saw in the destruction a silver lining. That the destruction is a reward for Esav. So if he gets rewarded for his good deeds, certainly we'll get rewarded for ours. So that's four interpretations. Oh, was he rewarded? Hashem wanted to destroy. He used him to... Well, to, well, to Esav, it's a victory. To, 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 when they destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, the Romans were celebrating. Now, it's a temporary victory. No, well, for, for, for Esav, yeah. Yes. If Hashem didn't want the Beit HaMikdash to be destroyed, Esav can't destroy it. That means he empowered Esav to do it. So that's like a... And if you go to Rome today, incidentally, they're still celebrating. Go to the Arch of Titus, and you still see a big arch, and you see on that arch, the Jewish people in shackles and in, in chains, carrying the menorah and all the vessels to Rome. And uh, the, the, to them, they were, they were celebrating it. Until today, they take it on the tour. Look at the Romans, the great Roman Empire. Look what they did to the Jewish people. But that only came because of the kibbutz. Okay, now, now what are we going to do? Now we can go to, to, to the second pasuk. Yes. Yes, there's much to say on why does the Gemara have to come along and say that his father asked him for a cup of water. What, what does this cup of water have to do with anything over there? And they bring references that I didn't see it regarding to Mashiach, although it might be correct, 
that Mayim is always the reference to Torah. That when we want to make an analogy to Torah and to show you how vital it is to the soul, so they say it's like water to the body. Water is even more important than food. A person can live without food for, uh, for a long time, but you can't, but, but God forbid, when a person dies from malnutrition, it's the dehydration that gets them, not the malnutrition. So therefore, uh, they compare uh, uh, the spiritual waters is the Torah. So as he was involved in giving his father physical water, God opened up his mind to the spiritual waters, and therefore he started to understand uh, depthness in the in the Torah itself. So that would be the analogy of why water was mentioned over here. You were giving your father water, so God said, I'll give you a taste of my water. My water is the waters of Torah, and he opened his mind, and he started to make this. Uh, uh, so again, and your Tehidim books, uh, if I was in uh, the yeshiva and I was getting a shoe like this, I would write next to Tehilim, uh, this chapter, where it says 89, I would make a note next to it and say, see Kiddushin, page 31b. Because that's really, you cannot learn this chapter without referencing this Gemara. It is the main, the main entree in order, and every chapter of Tehilim has a key like that. And that's the goal of this class, to find the keys. Yeah, of course. Every chapter to find where the Gemara and the Zohar and the Talmud, they reference the chapter, and then we can start to see exactly the, the depth of it. Now, there's something else that I'd like to, uh, like to mention over here. Again, we came to answer the question, why does he call the chapter in its introduction Mizmor? It's a pizmon, it's a jingle. There's no jingle. The content of this chapter is miserable. Why would he call it a mizmor? So I'd like to explain it in the following way. It's based on a Gemara that says that in the temple, the first temple, and in the second temple as well, to a, to a different degree, they had cherubs. You know what the cherubs are? Kerubim, 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 kerubim. Kerubim are these figurines made out of gold. And they're the image of a, a face of a boy and a girl. And these were not only for beauty, aesthetics, but these were actually uh, a monitor that would monitor the relationship between the Jewish people and God. What do I mean to say? When the Kohen would go in and look at the figurines, the way they were positioned, you were able to tell God's feelings at that moment towards the Jewish people. For example, if they were looking at each other, that was a sign of affection. And that would tell the Kohen and the people, God is in a good mood, he likes us. But sometimes the Kirubim were facing away from each other. Now, this was, there was no Kirubim app, so this was not like some, there no Wi-Fi in the Beit HaMikdash that somebody was controlling this uh, with some electrical gadget. Because you're asking yourself, how does a figure, you have furniture in your house, your furniture doesn't turn around, the, the blinds don't open up by themselves when they're in a good mood and close when they're in a bad mood. Somebody has to do it. But these were remote controlled. They were done by themselves. When, the, when God was angry, all of a sudden you see the Kirubim, they would start to turn away from each other, and they would be back to back. It's like when you're angry at somebody, you don't want to look at them. You turn your head. And then everybody would get nervous. Why is God angry at us? And then sometimes they were partially looking and so on and so forth. So that was the, uh, um, 
like I said, the monitor that was used to gauge the relationship at all times between God and the Jewish people based on the position of the Kerubim. Now watch what happens. That day that the Romans came to destroy the Beit HaMikdash, Gemara says, When the enemies entered the Hechal, Titus, Titus, he saw something that shocked him. Not only were the cherubs facing each other, but they were hugging each other. Now he didn't understand it, so he made fun. He said, this is what's going on in the Holy of Holies, what's going on, this, is, uh, this happens on us, this happens in the movie theaters by us, not in the, uh, in the Kodesh Kodeshim. He didn't understand what he saw. But when the rabbis got wind of it, they were shocked. This is the day that God destroyed the temple. You wouldn't expect on that day the Kirubim to be hugging each other. If anything, I would have expected not only them to be turned, but I would expect them to snap. <laughs> they should have snapped off. To fall off their mount. And instead, we see a tremendous sign of affection on a day that God was most, most angry. How do we explain it? How do we explain this? Unless you say the Kiruim were malfunctioning. You know, that's a, once they started to destroy the Beit HaMikdash, the whole place went haywire. So therefore it was giving a false positive. You know, sometimes you get a false positive. So that Kiruim were... No, that's not what the Gibbara says. No false positives in the Beit HaMikdash. They were working. They were working very well. So the question then is, why were they uh, uh, hugging each other on the day where God seemingly was most angry? I will offer you two interpretations. Both to me are very, very, very special. Therefore, I don't put them in any order because both of them deserve to be uh, served as a main entree. The first interpretation, which usually brings me to tears when I say this first interpretation, I saw from the great Sadiqim. There's a halakha that writes that when a couple is married and the husband is planning on going on a... These are the laws you learn, family purity laws. And the, the husband is planning on going on a long trip. So the halakha says, the night before he leaves, he must show affection to his wife. To show his wife that he loves her. He doesn't want to leave his wife just like that. That's the halakha. He must remember his wife before he goes on the derech. Says the great rabbis, Borei Olam knew that now the Jewish people who he's married to are going on a long road and a long journey of exile, 2,000 years. So the night before he sent us out, Borei Olam had to show us one more hug, one more sign of affection. He had to hug us very, very tight on that night because he knew that that love is going to have to last us for 2,000 years till he builds a Beit HaMikdash. Hayab Adam, God follows the halakha. Before I send my, I go away, the Shekinah is leaving. God says, before I leave the people, I have to show them one more. And if he embraced us with a tremendous, tremendous amount of ahava, Titos didn't understand it, but we understand it. And therefore, on the, the time of the destruction, he sings a song, he says, on that day of the destruction, although 
everything that you saw looked like lamentation. But if you saw in the Beta Megdash the Kiruvim that were hugging each other, this is a Mizmor. There was a silver lining. The love that God came at that point to show us that it's temporary. He's only going on the road. If he wouldn't have hugged us that night, that means God was divorcing us. That would have been God is leaving us for good. But if he showed us affection on that night, that tells us he's coming back. Because that's the halakha. Only if the husband plans on coming back. But if he plans on leaving for permanent, he doesn't have to show any affection to his wife that night. And therefore, it brought us to a great, a great, a great joy. Finally, the last interpretation that we say to explain Mizmor Asaf, and this is something that is very, very, very significant. <clears throat> and I saw this in a few places. One place I saw this in the Benish Hai. The Benish Hai has did a shot that he gave in Baghdad during the high holiday season, Shabbat Shuvah, and these, these great days. And this idea comes from one of the speeches that I saw from the Benish Hai. And then later on, I also saw the same concept, if you could believe it, in Meshech Chochmah. Now, Meshach Ochmah was giving speeches in Devinsk, somewhere in Europe. And, uh, there's no connection between Baghdad and Devinsk. There's no, uh, there's no uh, flights from Devinsk to Baghdad. And, uh, people live in Devinsk don't care about Baghdad. If you live in Baghdad, no one's thinking to go to Devinsk. There are two rabbis from two corners of the world, one in the Middle East and one in Eastern Europe, and they both came with the same concept. It's uh, beautiful to see when you see the correlation between great tzaddikim, that they think the same way. And they both introduce a concept that I refer to as relative judgment. What, what does relative judgment mean? So when God comes to judge his people, there's two ways he can judge the person. He can judge us according to our standing, which would be our true value, our worth. And that means, uh, you know, mitzvot, averot, put them on the scale like they told us in first grade, you know, measure it out and see, see, see what his value is. Now, that's called intrinsic judgment. Now, if, if you're going to get judged intrinsically, uh, most people would not fare so well. Because the rule is that whenever the IRS opens your books, I don't care how honest you are, they're going to find something. I mean, uh, they could always find a, a penny here and a penny there, and uh, then you're in trouble. So therefore, when God judges the Jew, if he's going to judge us based on our worth, so how much are we worth at the end of the day? Even if you look at our mitzvot, you can always find, you know, fallacies in the mitzvot, deficiencies, and then all of a sudden everything's going to be scrutinized and we're in trouble. But there's another judgment that saves us. And I call it relative judgment. And the Beni Shai and the Mitzvah explained it that God doesn't judge us intrinsically, but it's comparative judgment. He compares us to the rest of the world, to the goyim. Now, compared to everybody else, we look much better than we are. And we might not be perfect, but put us on the scale against all the other nations of the world. And all of a sudden, the Jew starts to look much better. As if God says, listen, it's the best I got. And look what else is out there. Compare them to everybody else. And that's what saves us. That's why they say that on Rosh Hashanah, the whole world is judged. Why? Why does the whole world have to be judged? 
I mean, I understand it's our Rosh Hashanah. You want to judge the Jews. The Goyim, they were on uh, sometime in December, judge them. Why, why, do you have to, why, they gotta be, why do they have to be judged on our day? It's our day. We're doing the service. And therefore, what are you mixing up our holiday with them? And the explanation is because when all the rest of the world passes by God, it makes us look much better. So that's a, a benefit for us. Don't you understand? When, when 14 billion people walk by God, oh, dear, God said, look at these people over here. Look at this corruptness. Look at morality and degeneracy. And this is every Gehinam and all the troubles. And, oh, my gosh, all the lowliness. Then all of a sudden, the Jew comes. And you go, listen, he's not, he's, not, he's not that. I mean, he's, he's, he's not Snow White either, but he's not that. And therefore, it makes us look much better than we are. You understand what it does? Uh, it, it's it's a, it's a beautiful way to. Uh, uh, to oh, 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 that's that, that that's part of it. That's part of it. Very good. Now you're learning how to teach the name correctly. But you see over here, you see over here, a beautiful concept. And that's why, and that's why, um, the Benish Chai says in a, in a brilliant hadush. That on Sukkot, if you paid attention, I don't know if you paid attention, but on Sukkot they bring uh, a certain amount of bulls in the Beit HaMikdash. Every day they bring a certain amount of bulls. Parim, Korban. You probably didn't count it, but I did. I counted how many bulls they bring on Sukkot altogether. And it's 70. 70. And whenever you see the word 70, it represents the 70 nations. And the Gemara says, if the green would only know how much benefit they get by us bringing those korbanot, they get a tremendous amount of sustenance from those better. And the Benish Hai says, why would we bring korbanot for them? I mean, like you just said, Shefok Hamad Kadagoyim, who cares about them? Why are we trying to give them standing? Says the Benish Hai, he says, because as long as the Goyim have standing, there's somebody to compare us to, and therefore we look good. Once you're ready, there's no more goyim. Now that's it. We're, we're, we're on, the, on the stage. We're spotlighted. We're, we're, no, it's, you, you can't say, God, well, look at them. Like, you know, the kids here. And when we were in school, uh, uh, we used to get a, a, a bad mark on, on the test. So what would you tell your mother? Yeah, but he got a 40. Yeah. <laughs> so you can, compared to him, I'm Einstein. You know, I got a 50, but I, he, got, he got a 20. So therefore, it's comparative genius. So just like this comparative genius, there's comparative tzaddik. So based on this, I saw an unbelievable explanation. We'll conclude with this. This I heard from the Sanza Rebbe, of Chaim Sanz, the Sanza Rebbe. He said like this, Sanz Klosenberger Rebbe. Oh, go spell Klosenberger. Let's see if you can spell Klosenberger. I'm not going to spell check you on Klosenberger. Anyway, he said... On the day that God destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, he was angry at us. But listen to the language of the Gemara. When the temple was being destroyed, he says, no doubt the Kirubim weren't facing each other. For sure they were back to back. But listen to the language of the Gemara. When the Oivim entered the Hechal and God saw how bad these enemies are, at that point, they activated comparative judgment. When they entered, God said, look how bad these people are. Look how bloodthirsty. Look how wanting to destroy, but they're enjoying it. And they're so, Titos took a, forgive me, took a, a, a girl, opened up a Sefer Torah in the Hechal and committed an act of immorality. When God saw this and said, there, the Jews are not perfect. 
But at that moment when they entered the Hechal, they were compared and they made the Jewish people look much better. And then all of a sudden the Kirubim started to hug each other and say, you know what? They're not perfect, but it's the best we got. And therefore it aroused a tremendous amount of mercy on that day that even though we might be guilty, but we're not as guilty as everybody else. Which means the lowest uh, 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 of the Jews might be greater in a certain sense, because he has neshama, he has kedushah, he has certain values, he has certain sense, he has certain decency, and that you can't take away. And therefore, mizmor le'asaf, on the day of the destruction of Beit HaMikdash, Asaf sings a mizmor. And what's the mizmor? That as bad as it is, but we're still the chosen one of God, that God ultimately does not give us up for any other nation. And the proof of the pudding is, when God came to give the Torah, he shopped around first. He went to Yishmael. You want the Torah? Write a first refusal. They said, no, we're out. He went to Esav. You interested? We're out. No, they refused. They came to the Jewish people. Uh, okay, we, 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 we'll take it. Now what happens? Moshe Rabbeinu comes down and sees they're doing the, the golden calf. So what did he do with the Luchot? He breaks them. Hold it. I wouldn't have done that. I would say, listen, so the Jewish people can't get these Luchot. They worship Abu Dazarah. Return to sender. I mean, if somebody comes and gives you a mail, go deliver it to such a person. He's not home. What do you do? You rip it up? No, you return it to the sender. So shouldn't Moshe Rabbeinu have given it back to God? And now God should go back to Yishmael and say, okay, listen, you know, uh, uh, I thought that we had a buyer, but no buyer. Therefore, we'll offer it to you now and we'll make, we'll make a deal. You know what the explanation is? Moshe Rabbeinu knew there's no other buyers. God only has one. And therefore... If the Jewish people are not getting it, nobody's getting it. Nobody's getting it. I got to give it back to God to go, to go shop it around again. He chose us for better or for worse. And therefore, you break the Lord. God's not going to go give it to anybody else. Because even so, as bad as we are, we're not them. And that brings Asaf to say, Asaf, song to Asaf, that look how great we are, even in our worst moments. It's still better than everybody else. Okay, let's stop over here.